Hey, and thanks for tuning in. At Northgate, we're passionate about helping people become who God purposed them to be. We hope that this message encourages and blesses you today. Stay tuned after for more ways to connect. to see you. Welcome to Northgate if we haven't met. Uh, my name is Steve Perkins. I'm one of the pastors and I'm typically found outside those doors after the service. I'd love to uh, get to know you there. It is so good to be back with you uh, today. So good. Uh, Pastor Wayne and his wife Arlene, my wife and I, along with our two uh, oldest kids and along with 51 Northgaters, including all of us total, uh, many of you know, just got back last weekend from a trip to Rome and uh, Israel. Thank you so much for your prayers. We had a wonderful time. Uh, I have to say a lot of action for an introvert. Uh, but uh, I, I, I did well because it was a really easy group, an exceptional group, I have to say. Good food and fantastic worship, lots of aha moments. At the same time, as I'm sure you understand, it is really good to be home. If you want to go to Israel, we still have a few spots available for an October trip this October. And uh, Pastor Wayne will be going on that, Pastor uh, Terry, also uh, possibly now Pastor Linnea. Uh, some of you know that uh, Linnea's husband, Joe, was diagnosed with lymphoma last year. Uh, and this week, we found out that he is now in remission. So praise God. <laughs> Only God. So uh, you can check that trip out at the welcome desk. Now, every time I go to Israel, I learn something. I've been there six times now. And so what I want to do today is pass on to you some of, some of what I've been learning on this trip, previous trips, and uh, of course from the Bible. And the timing is perfect from my point of view because we're beginning this brand new series. Uh, what difference does Easter make? Uh, and I think that's a very good question. Easter is only a few weeks away, believe it or not. And uh, I want to help you in these next weeks prepare. I want to help you uh, get ready uh, to celebrate Easter here at Northgate. And maybe that sounds kind of boring to you. I don't know. I hope it doesn't. I, I hope you're not saying you'd rather hear a series on relationships you know, or marriage or five steps to, you know, and we did that in January, not five steps. You can't fix anything in five steps. But, um, you know, or maybe say, I want, I want to talk about finances. We did that in, in, in February. None of that matters. All right? None of that matters if Jesus isn't raised from the dead. Easter is central to our understanding as, as Christ followers. And for, so for three weeks, we're going to be looking at that question. What difference does Easter make? And we'll answer that question from the point of view of uh, three different biblical characters, uh, the Roman centurion today, Joseph of Arimathea the next week, and finally Barabbas. Now, if you don't know who any of those people are, don't sweat it, because by the time uh, Easter rolls around, you will. Rolls around, that's a pun, because the stone rolled away on, on Easter, and I'm a little rusty. Today, the Roman centurion. In the first century, 2,000 years ago, the centurion 
would have been a commander in the Roman army. He was in charge of about 100 men, so a professional soldier. And, and because uh, Rome ruled the day in Jesus' day, and because they ruled Israel, the occasional centurion enters Jesus' story. For example, in Matthew, Jesus heals a centurion's servant at the centurion's request. But that's not the encounter I want to focus on today. The encounter I want to focus on is found in the Gospel of Mark chapter 15, where a centurion stands in front of the crucified Jesus, and he says a very famous line, surely this man was the Son of God. It's a famous line because John Wayne played that character in the movie, The Greatest Story Ever Told, or as I like to call it, The Longest Movie Ever Made, four hours long. On a side note, those of you who don't know who John Wayne is, I have to let you know he's a famous actor, 20th century, westerns mostly. A lovely airport is named after him in Orange County. Okay, so surely this man was the son of God. What difference does Easter make? Well, it seems to have made a difference for him. For the centurion, not John Wayne, for the centurion, don't you think? The Holy Spirit did something in that man that Good Friday, that Easter weekend, something godlike transpired in his heart. And that's because the death and the resurrection of Jesus has consequences, it changes us. And like so many of us, before we meet Christ, he, he didn't see it. Coming, his, his day, I imagine, started just like any other day, and his job description was simple enough, keep the peace, especially as the Jewish Passover was approaching. What's the Passover, maybe you, you ask? Well, the history lesson, the Passover, Passover is an annual Jewish festival that commemorates the Exodus. Well, what's the Exodus? Well, centuries before Jesus, centuries before, okay, the Jews find themselves enslaved in Egypt for 400 plus years. And at the end of those 400 years of slavery, God raises up a new leader named Moses, and the nation of Israel leaves Egypt behind and heads out to the promised land, or the nation of Israel, a nation in which God will be the leader, not Pharaoh, Pharaoh being the king of Egypt. And Passover celebrates that experience in part, in a very dramatic part of that story. But now, fast forward. Again, that's centuries before Jesus. So fast forward then to Jesus' day. And Israel has a new leader, only it's not Pharaoh. And it's not God. The leader of Israel is Caesar, the Roman emperor. And here's what you need to know about Caesar. And here's what you need to know about the Romans. They don't worship God. Okay? They don't worship God. No, no, no. They worship gods. Many, many, many gods. Greek mythology, if you remember studying that in, in high school. Zeus or, or Jupiter, as he was later called. The Romans even worshipped the emperor himself. And I've talked to you about that before. So, so the, Romans, the, the Romans don't worship God. Whereas Jews in Jesus' day do. They worship the one true God of Israel, and for the most part at this point in history, 
the Romans allow it. Now, 40 years after the resurrection of Jesus, the Romans will no longer allow the Jews to worship in the way they would like to worship. The emperor Hadrian destroys the temple, just as Jesus had predicted 40 years before. The emperor renames the Holy Land Palestina or Palestine based on Israel's greatest enemy's namesake, the Philistines. And today when you visit Jerusalem, as I just did, you will not see on the Temple Mount, the place where the temple stood, you will not see a Jewish holy site, you will not see a Christian holy site, but you will see a big gold dome, which is a Muslim holy site called the Dome of the Rock. And around it, there's a sign that reads, on the Dome of the Rock, on this Muslim holy site, there is one God, Allah, and he has no son. He has no acquaintance. But rewind, this is how the temple looks in Jesus' day. It's huge. And once a year, like I said, during the Passover, as many Jews as possible descend on Jerusalem to sacrifice a lamb on behalf of their families. So I'm putting my, my guilt and my family's guilt on an innocent lamb. And, in, 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 and it's during that very week, during the week of the Passover, Think about this, that Jesus, the Lamb of God, Scripture calls him, that Jesus, the Lamb of God, takes away the sins of the world. One Lamb dies for every person, dead or living, or who will ever live after that moment. And it all happened 2,000 years ago. The crucifixion of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, in part at the hands of a nameless centurion, person we're going to talk about today. Talk about being at the crossroads of history. But you have to understand it's no big deal at first. It's no big deal at all, the crucifixion of Jesus. You have to realize that. Romans are violent people, gladiators, and, and later on Jews and, and Christians being thrown to the lions for entertainment purposes simply to entertain the masses. The Romans were violent, and they never lacked ideas when it came to killing people. Lots of innovations, including crucifixion. When I was in Rome two weeks ago at the Colosseum, uh, my uh, Jewish uh, friend, Jane, uh, our tour guide in Israel, she, she, she said to me, but she's a Jewish Christ follower, she said to me, Steve, she said, I would have loved to have seen all the different shows at the Colosseum all those years ago, 2,000 years ago, I said to her, Jane, I've got bad news for you. You would have been in the show. <laughs> because that's who they threw. They threw Jews to the lions and then later Christians to the lions. They loved to kill people, the Romans. They loved to crucify people. Now, crucifixions don't happen every day. They're primarily reserved for non-citizens sometimes traitors. That's why Peter, by the way, Jesus' follower, is crucified, and Paul, another follower of Jesus, is beheaded because Peter is not a Roman citizen, whereas Paul is. And while losing your head, I'm sure we agree, is very unpleasant, it is a lot more pleasant than being crucified where you slowly suffocate to death, a painful, excruciating death that would many times take days. The Romans, when they crucify, always crucify publicly too. 
many times alongside a road, outside the city gates, and they do so to serve as a warning. Toe the line, or this too may happen to you. And the centurion makes the crucifixions happen. He or his men, very likely, drive the nails through the victim's ankles. They wrap the victim's arms around the crossbeam and either tie his hands to the top or nail his hands, as they did in Jesus' case. And, and listen to me. They do so. They crucify. They kill without hesitation. And they don't mind doing it. Now, I know that is hard to imagine in our context I know it's hard to imagine a society that is as violent as a Roman society, but the Roman world, was, a, while sophisticated, was a very cruel world. And if you serve the Roman Empire, if you're in bed with Rome, you yourself are a cruel person. It's survival of the fittest, kill or be killed. So that first Good Friday, okay, the orders are given. Three different men, by the end of the day, are to be executed. They're to be crucified in the same way, on the same day, one next to the other, including Jesus. Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, wants to execute a political prisoner named Barabbas, a revolutionary, we'll talk about him in a couple of weeks, But the Jewish priest, Caiaphas, has a different idea. He wants Rome to execute Jesus, not Barabbas. Now, the Romans have heard about Jesus. Everybody has. He's kind of a big deal back then. He's got a big following. But the Romans, at this point in history, don't perceive Jesus as a political threat per se. They will after he's raised from the dead. But, but not at this point. It, it, besides, I mean, it's difficult to, to hate someone, to fear someone who says, love your enemies. So the Romans don't mind Jesus, whereas the religious leaders do. They can't stand him. I mean, Jesus has really ticked them off, and he's done it deliberately. And they, the religious leaders, now want Jesus out of the picture. So in the narrative of Jesus' story, there's this tug of war between Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, who doesn't give a rip about Jesus. Crucify him or don't crucify him, doesn't care. And the chief priest who wants Jesus dead. So a tug of war between the Roman authorities and the Jewish religious authorities. So, so many times, people have misunderstood this. They say, well, Pontius Pilate was innocent in this. I don't think so. He still gave the order to kill Jesus. But people have imagined things like this throughout the centuries. And that's how anti-Semitism has developed. The Jews killed Jesus and all that stuff. No, Pilate killed Jesus. The reason why... Pilate did this because the Jews didn't have the authority to kill Jesus. They didn't have the authority to kill anyone. So Pilate, I mean, sometimes people have drawn him. They've they've described him as this sort of innocent victim in all of this. He is not innocent. He's guilty. He's just indifferent. It makes no difference to Pilate who dies that day, whether he's guilty or innocent. That's not even a factor worth considering. Either way, either way, whoever gets crucified, the centurion back to him will have to carry the executions out. So we're going to imagine that day, Good Friday, leading up to Easter from the centurion's perspective. 
He walks through the streets of Jerusalem on his way to the Antonia Fortress. Emotions are running high. Not his emotions. It's a normal day for him. But others. Jerusalem is crowded with thousands upon thousands of Jews who are arriving for the Passover. And almost every single one of them who has heard about Jesus has an opinion about Jesus. Just like everybody has an opinion about Jesus today. Some are quite fond of Jesus. Many speak of his kindness toward them. But on the other hand, some just don't like him at all. Saying things like, who does he think he is? God or something. And of course, the centurion, when he first lays eyes on Jesus that day, Jesus is already unrecognizable. 39 lashes, the Bible says. Metal claws attached to strips of leather digging into Jesus' back and the rest of his body. Dig, turning, pulling, clawing the flesh out of his body as the whip is retracted. Most people in the first century don't survive a good Roman flogging. And when they do, if they do, they are almost always, always unrecognizable by the end. Skin torn to shreds, muscle, tissue, organs exposed. And then the soldiers play the game of the king with Jesus. Every December 25th, on the winter solstice, when the Romans worshipped Saturn, the king of the gods, Roman soldiers would play a board game called the Game of the King. And here's how it went down. They'd dress up a prisoner to look like Caesar. They'd put a cape on him, a crown, and in Jesus' case, a crown of thorns. We always like our leaders. The Romans didn't always like theirs. And so once a year, they were permitted by Caesar the soldiers were, to mock Caesar. To do to a random prisoner what they would like to do to Caesar. And so they dressed the prisoner up like Caesar and played this board game carved into the paving stones below them, the game of the king. And who better to play that game with than Jesus, the king of the Jews? And so they torture Jesus, these soldiers, one after another, while playing a game. They, hey, hey, buddy, don't forget to roll the dice. It's your turn. And they torture him round after round after round. Jesus suffers. And the winner of the game, well, he gets to put the prisoner to death. He gets to run a sword right through him, impale him, but not today, not with Jesus. Why? Because it isn't December 25th, right? That's when we celebrate Christmas. Early Christians chose December 25th because it was such a wicked day when the ancients worshipped Saturn. They decided to celebrate Christmas, the birth of Christ, on that day to sort of uh, counteract what was happening on that day. But it's not December 25th when Jesus is crucified. No, it's later than that. It's the Passover. It's spring, not winter. And while the soldiers are very likely given permission to play this game with this king of the Jews, they are not given permission to kill the prisoner at the end of the game. And so Jesus has to be crucified. A week or two ago, I stood in that courtyard like I have so many times before. And that game of the king, let's put it up on the screen, is still there. It's buried in this building called what was called Antonia Fortress. Now there's a convent over it. But that's the game 
which the soldiers very likely played, and that is the place where the soldiers played it, where Jesus was flogged 2,000 years ago. And so when the centurion lays eyes on Jesus, having gone through all this, Jesus is nearly dead already. He is weak, he is broken, he is fatigued. The soldier leads Jesus to a huge rock quarry, Golgotha, the place of the skull. Crowds are gathering, and upon arrival, the centurion and his men go to work. They start to crucify, and and, and it's nothing personal. They drive spikes through Jesus' hands, his feet, and then they raise him up. And remember, it's not just Jesus getting crucified. There are two others crucified next to him. But for some reason, we know the reason. The centurion just cannot keep his eyes off the guy hanging in the middle. And it's not just the centurion noticing Jesus, but everyone. Jesus is the one getting the lion's share of the crowd's attention. Some are mean and vindictive to Jesus. They ridicule him while others are kind. One even starts to give Jesus a sponge with vinegar on it, a numbing agent. But others stop him. They say tauntingly, leave him alone. He's called out for Elijah. He's called out for the, the, the prophet. He's called out for God. Let God help him out then. But all the time, the centurion watches Jesus. He doesn't know why. I mean, it's not that crucifixion bothers him. You have to understand understand that. It's not that crucifixion bothers him. He's crucified others. He will crucify more in the future, presumably. But there's just something different about this guy, Jesus. Maybe he's guilty. Maybe he's not. It doesn't matter. The centurion has crucified innocent people before. The centurion's job is not to be judge or jury. It's to carry out the orders. So why is he drawn to him? Maybe it's Jesus' courage. That could be the reason. Maybe it's the fact that Jesus doesn't shrink back. Maybe it's that Jesus sort of seems to embrace the cross, not run away from it. There's a serenity there, stripped, humiliated, exposed, yet calm and composed and confident. Maybe it's Jesus' reaction to the crowd and a reaction like no one has ever had before when being crucified. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Maybe it's what Jesus said to the thief hanging next to him on a cross. Today you will be in paradise with me. Somehow, in some way, the centurion begins to respect Jesus. And it doesn't take long for respect to turn into reverence. If Rome was one way, Jesus is the other. If Rome is guilty, Jesus is innocent. If Rome is darkness, Jesus is light. And then there's not just a metaphorical darkness, there's a physical darkness. That covers the earth as Jesus is crucified. The sun goes out three hours like it's nighttime. And at the end of those three hours, Jesus breathes his last breath. And as he breathes his last breath, 
The Gospel of Matthew says there's a massive earthquake. The centurion's conclusion, standing there, looking at the crucified Jesus, the corpse of Jesus. Surely this man was the Son of God. Wow. What Easter does, what difference does Easter make? Easter demonstrates the character of God. It tells us who God is. It tells us what God is like. Jesus loves you. We say that all the time here at Northgate. But the death and resurrection actually proves it. Jesus does love you. He died for you. He died to prove it. He's risen from the dead for you, which is what we'll celebrate as we celebrate Easter together, that Jesus is no longer dead. He is alive. And people say, well, how do you know he's alive? I love how Billy Graham answered that question because I talked to him this morning. What caught the centurion's attention? Did Jesus' mercy and grace cause the centurion to rethink the situation, to pause maybe, to to ponder what really was happening here? Was it Jesus' love expressed to his mother as he himself was dying. He took the time to love his mother who was standing at the foot of the cross and to love his friend, John, and to make sure that John took care of his mother. Maybe the centurion was astonished that Jesus, having been flogged to the point of death, could still at the same time, even while dying such an excruciating death, be so selfless. And so empty of himself. Whatever it was, the centurion, a violent pagan Roman soldier who worshipped Zeus or Jupiter or, or whatever you want to call him, a violent pagan Roman soldier with no connection to Judaism or the God of Israel whatsoever, saw in this carpenter saw in this Jewish rabbi from up north the Son of God. And he believed. I always tell people who are far from God and they're confused when I say it until they find God, I always say to them, you will not get it until you get it. You know what I mean? Because then you get it. And you're like, oh, I didn't used to get it. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The centurion heard the word of God, the word of Jesus. The Bible calls Jesus the word of God. And Jesus said, whoever has ears, let them hear. The centurion had a hearing ear. He heard everything Jesus had to say, everything. He saw everything that transpired on the cross on that particular Good Friday, on that day. And when he heard it, when he saw it, his eyes were opened. Spiritually speaking, that popular hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Here it is. Was blind, but now I see. What difference does Easter make? Easter demonstrates the character of God. Look at Jesus, God says, because when you look at him, you see 
me. Hallelujah. And nobody suffers like Jesus. Not, not in the way he suffered, his dignity the entire time, his, his grace. I don't know what it's like for you, but I don't suffer that way. With dignity, with grace, my wife will tell you I was miserable on my flight home because I had a middle seat. And the guy next to me was all elbows. Poor me. Without Christ, we're blind, aren't we? We're blind. But with Christ, we, we can see. Before Christ, we're all like that centurion who experienced hours of darkness before Jesus died for us and saved us. We, too, lived in darkness. But Jesus, but I'm sorry, but just like that centurion, when, when, when the darkness lifted and our eyes were opened, we can now see Jesus for who he really is. We see him loving us. We see him dying for us. We see him willing to forgive us. We see him desperately wanting to include us and welcome us into his kingdom. And as I was preparing this message, I had the thought, I wonder, I can't prove it, I can't find it anywhere in the passage, but I just wonder if Jesus' eyes locked with the centurion's eyes. And I wonder if that's what got him. Looking into the eyes of God. God's eyes meeting his. Just like the centurion, we hear God speak. We hear Jesus say what he has to say. And when we hear him and when we see him, we also see ourselves for who we really are. Our unrighteousness, our brokenness, our sin, our need of a Savior. When God encounters the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, Isaiah's response is, go away from me, Lord. I'm unclean. But when we put our trust in Jesus, when we put our trust in the finished work of the cross, in the death and the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, we too honor God. We too declare that Jesus is the Savior, that he is the Son of God himself. What difference does Easter make? We forget that sometimes, don't we? Makes all the difference. Easter demonstrates the character of God. 2,000 years later, people are still asking the same question they have always asked, and it's ridiculous, I think. They're asking the question, without considering the answer. They're asking the question, what, what's God like? I'm, an, I'm agnostic, people say, and somehow that sounds smart to people. Well, I'm not an atheist, because that's stupid. Someone had to make this. But I'm agnostic, I'm not sure. You don't have to be agnostic. You don't have to be uncertain about who God is or what God is like. All you have to do is look at Jesus. That's what God is like. That's who God is. And our job this Easter as we get ready to celebrate Easter is to help others see Jesus and hear Jesus like we have. 
to give the risen Jesus away. We won't have to do it alone. The Holy Spirit will help us. But our job is to help others like us, to help other unrighteous, broken people, to see Jesus for who he really is, to hear his words, to help others see like we have seen their basic fundamental need for a Savior. Paul prays in Ephesians that our eyes will be opened, that our understanding will be enlightened, and that's how we should pray for our loved ones this Easter. We've got to pray that our loved ones, our family, our friends who are far from God will hear what the centurion heard, will see what he saw, but Romans says they, they cannot hear unless they have the opportunity to hear. So how do we do that? Well, we invite them to Easter, and our prayer will be that when they come, they will see in Jesus not just a good teacher or a moral example or a nice guy, but they will see in him the Son of God, the risen Son of God. What difference does Easter make beyond the eggs and the ham and the Cadbury bunny? Well, think about that centurion one more time. Put yourself at the foot of the cross in that centurion's high top spiky sandals and see Jesus hanging there naked covered in blood unrecognizable his body torn from head to toe his front organs exposed listen to what he has to say And then come to the only conclusion any reasonable person can come to. Agree with the centurion. Surely this man was the son of God. And we'll, we'll do better than that. Surely this man is the son of God. What difference does Easter make? Easter demonstrates the character of God. It demonstrates the reality that God loves you. And he does. Jesus died for you. When he hung on the cross, his eyes locked with yours. Because he had you in mind. And if you put your trust in him, you are his and he is yours. And if you don't know him, consider him, follow him, embrace him. Maybe you thought today was going to be just like any other day. And maybe instead today is the day that you begin a relationship with Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Let's sing together that uh, simple children's song. Jesus loves me. Yeah, all right, let's sing it together. Here we go. Jesus loves me.
sweet Jesus, we thank you for saving us. We thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, for sending your one and only Son for us, for raising your Son from the dead, and for not leaving us alone. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Convince us today of Jesus' love, of the Father's love for us, and help us to love others enough that we are willing to tell them about you. And Holy Spirit, fill us as we do. Show us the right time, show us the right place to make that invitation. And help us to invite them to Easter and make us miserable until we don't, until we do it, until we do it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, our prayer team will be up here after the service. They would love to pray for you. If you'd like to put your trust in Christ, they would love to help you do that. Uh, Please stand for God's blessing. Again, I'll be outside those doors after the service. Jesus loves you, and I love you. You can open your hands like this if you'd like. It's just a posture of receiving. Receive God's blessing, and now unto him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, his risen power. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. Turn around, say hi to someone. I will see you next weekend. All right, thanks for watching. I wanna let you know about three things that you can do. First, you can locate discussion questions for this message on our page so you can do some independent study or talk with a group to help you process. Then, follow us on Vimeo or iTunes so you don't miss a single message. Better yet, join us in person Saturdays at 5 p.m. or Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m. Finally, if you are feeling this ministry and you want to help advance the mission of helping people become who God purposed them to be, you can click the link to give. Your generosity brings hope, healing, and radical transformation to people all over the world. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.